It's good. Well, everyone, I'll have everyone take their seats. We'll get started here. We're, we got a minute early, I guess, but we'll, uh, we'll get started with prayer. It's good to see everybody in their spaces with sunshiny faces. Or places with sunshiny faces. That's what it was. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Still going to get tough questions, right? All right, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together and learn your word and that through it we can persevere to the day you come for us, that we can increase in knowledge and wisdom and live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray that you'd help us to think well upon this text. Also pray for Bob as he preaches to us today out of 1 Corinthians. Help us to understand the concepts in that book so that we may get it right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time we were in Proverbs, I know it's been a while. We've had kind of an excursus and other things that we were covering We had left Proverbs chapter 2 where we saw both blessings and curses depending on whether you sought God's wisdom or not. And we defined God's wisdom as not something innate to man, but something that was learned from his word. And so today, now as we proceed into Proverbs chapter 3, we are going to learn afresh that there are rewards to living godly lives, lives filled with wisdom, But as we look at these rewards, I want you to remember that the book of Proverbs gives general principles. It doesn't give absolute promises. So, for example, we all know that generally speaking, a kind-hearted person who's easy to get along with, who works diligently, they're probably going to do better in the workplace than some person who doesn't work diligently, who's nasty and mean-spirited. But that's not always the case. Everyone knows examples where the rotten apple climbs to the top. And so, again, the book of Proverbs is talking about the way the world normally is. There's always exceptions. So don't think that these are absolute promises. But, again, it's the general case. Now, I had a homework assignment for you where we're going to look at four different questions. And, again, I know it's been a while, but let's look at these questions and feel free to answer them as you Uh, see fit here. Let's begin with number one. In this section in Proverbs 3, 1 through 8, what does Solomon mean by heart? I think it's important that we define what the heart is because so often it's defined merely as emotions. And I just want to make sure that we all know that that's not exclusively what it is. Does anyone want to take a stab at what the heart is? Uh, Yeah, Eric. I'll take a stab at it. Yes. It's, it's your mind yeah. and your, your center of your thoughts. Amen. But I also think it, it, it's more than that a little bit. I think, I think of it as, uh, you know, your, uh, just what, what kind of makes you, what animates you. Sure, so your will and, yeah. as well. Well said. I, I think you're right. I think it's a good way of saying it. It's the center of our thought life. And it would incorporate, typically, if you look at some of the textbook definitions in theology, it incorporates three things. It's the will, it's the intellect, and also the emotions, all three of them. So it's the center of our thought life. Now, I want everyone to turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 22. And the reason I want you to turn to Mark 17, 18 through 22 is here Jesus gives us a good definition of what the heart is. And I'm not saying that Solomon and Jesus have the identical definition because context tells you whether they are talking about the same thing. But I think if you compare the context here in Proverbs chapter 3, I think it is the same. In other words, I'm not saying every time someone uses the term heart in the Bible, it always means this. 
But I'm saying in this context, I think Jesus and Solomon are really talking about the same thing as Erica just said, the, the center of the thought life. So again, turn your Bibles to Mark 7, 18 through 22. And if you remember in Mark 7, this is where the Pharisees were lambasting Jesus and his disciples because they did not wash their hands prior to eating. Now, does everyone realize that there is no command in the Old Covenant in which you had to wash prior to eating? That is for the normal person. That was not a command from God. And so where did the Pharisees come up with that law? They made it up. And so all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples have to jump through their hoops rather than obeying the word of God. But Jesus is going to cut to the heart of the matter, and he's going to show ultimately, if you're concerned about sin, the physical washing of the external outwardness of the human isn't going to help because our sin nature is within. It's our thought life. That's the idea. And so that's what Jesus shows. Our sin comes from our mind. Mark seven eighteen through 22, notice regarding Jesus says, He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it is eliminated. So notice right there, he's talking about the heart is the issue, not the stomach. And again, the heart, he knows... He's the creator. He's also, by the way, the average Hebrew would have known that the heart was the organ that pumped blood. So obviously the heart is being used here as the metaphor for the center of the thought life. Also notice very important, importantly in verse 19, notice the parenthetical comment, thus he declared all foods clean. Let's think about that for just a minute. Jesus, who is the Lord of heaven and earth who is the mediator of the new covenant, has declared all foods clean. So there's no need to try to live a kosher life because the Messiah has declared all foods clean. Now, if someone wants to eat certain foods and not eat certain foods, that's fine. But it is not binding morally upon any person. You are not, you are not morally bound to only eat certain foods. Okay. Um, by the way, let's just stop there for just a minute. Uh, Bob has talked about this on numerous occasions. Do you remember that there was three laws that really separated the Jew from the Gentile? It was circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and the food laws. And this is, these three laws made the Israelites so unique that the Gentiles could never really mix with them throughout history. The reason that was important is because, in some sense, you had to have a a pure race of Jews in order for the Messiah to come. And they are kept distinct as a people. But after the Messiah comes, you can see why the mingling doesn't matter now. The Jews and Gentiles now are brought to be one new man, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2. And so that's one of the reasons why circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and food laws are never to be something that separates us. Why? Because in Christ, they were done away with. Okay? So keep reading, though, here for our purposes. He says in verse 20, he says, And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that's what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men. Notice that genitive, out of the heart of men. Proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, 
and foolishness. Where does it all come from? It's out of the heart. And again, the heart would be the center of what? The thought life. That's where we battle. Uh, Bob, do you remember how many years you've had to battle against pietism? And I remember you had mentioned years ago about these pietists, specifically the desert fathers, quote-unquote, who would go out into the desert and they thought that they could get away from sin because they fled away from other people. And you'd always told us the problem is they brought themselves with, wasn't it? That's one of the things that keeps coming up throughout church history. Yeah. And if we understand the body of Christ to be those who are born of God, joined to one another, built on the foundation, the one new man, then why would you go like this Simon Stylides, who's a famous guy? He spent all these years up on a pole to, to achieve holiness. Wow. But the fact is we really do need one another. Right. And one of the things that we'll have to decide... In fact, um, if someone could use this mic besides me, I'll get it dialed in. Is there such a thing as dormant moral powers within the sinner that can be stirred up? Because I ran into that term twice in the last two weeks of my studies. Wow. One with it from Watchman Nee and the other from Finney. Wow. So are there dormant moral powers? And if we just get them, there's some divinity or something within man that can yeah. be stirred up. Right. No, that's very good. Somebody wants to talk. I want to get this dialed in because I can't yeah. see what I'm seeing on there. Go ahead. You don't want to talk. <laughs> 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 All right. All right. Very good. All right. Anybody else on number one? Or I can go out to our second assignment uh, piece here. Maybe on number two, somebody will want to comment. Why is the believer to always be devoted to grace and truth? We saw that in verse 3, that that's something that the person dedicated to wisdom, really the believer, is to be dedicated to all of their lives. Does anybody want to take a stab as to why that is? I think the text actually tells us. I think there's really two reasons. Yeah, go ahead. Now, yes. Yeah. Now, <laughs> go ahead, Brian. That's good. I'd like to see. According to the text, I believe it says to find favor with God. Yeah, amen. Amen. Verse 4. Thank you. So that, in, um, this is another principle Bob taught us. Anytime the Bible gives you the interpretation, it's the right one. <laughs> right, right. Verse 4, it says, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Does everyone see that in verse 4? Now, in, in keeping with that, remember God calls us to be holy as he is holy. We see that in Leviticus 19. We see that in 1 Peter 1.16. We are called to be holy as he is. So think about holy means to be set apart, to be different. And obviously one of the ways that we are different is that we are those who demonstrate grace and truth. That is, we're gracious to others, but we're also people of the truth. And I've always thought of this analogy when it comes to grace and truth. Think about grace as being the water of a river and the truth are the banks. Okay, if you have no grace, you're a dry gulch. But if you have no banks, you just have a destructive flood. And so both are absolutely necessary. And this is what God reveals himself to be the God of grace and truth on Exodus 34. And we'll look at that passage when we come to it. God is the God of grace and truth. He is the one who reveals himself that way. Jesus is revealed as the same God in John 1.14. 
full of grace and truth. And so we'll look at that as we go. But that's a very good answer. All right, so let's see. Number three, we'll come to that one. What does it mean to be wise in your own eyes? Does anyone want to take a stab at that? To be wise? Yes, Marilyn. We got to get a microphone to you. Carly's coming. Thank you, Marilyn, for taking this one on. One second. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just a simple answer to not consider the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So this is something where we look to our own and our own intelligence, our own abilities to solve the problems of life rather than the word of God. Absolutely. Um, I was going to mention a little bit of a little bit of philosophy at this point because I want you to think about a philosopher named Benedict Spinoza. How many ever have heard of Benedict Spinoza? Sometimes he's called Baruch Spinoza. He was actually a Jewish man. He was of I think he lived in Holland, if I recall. But Benedict Spinoza was the first and really the original rationalist. Now, you and I as Christians are rational. We think rationally, but we are not rationalists. Now, let me explain what the rationalist was. What Benedict Spinoza believed was that all truth is innate to the human being. In fact, by the way, I've heard Sean Hannity say this at time, that education is that which brings out from within all of the truth within the human being. It's not true. That's what Benedict Spinoza believed, that a human being could sit in a corner, and because all truth is in here, you could rationalize your way to all truth, and therefore you're not dependent upon God's revelation. Well, that should be rightly rejected as rationalism, but the movement against that led away from rational thought into the postmodern age. So in the Christian life, the way we ride the middle ground, which is true in this one, is that we are not rationalists believing that all truth is innate to humans or all goodness is within us, as Bob was talking about, but instead we know that we are relying upon God and what he has revealed to know who he is, what he requires, why we need him, and the truth about ourselves, okay? So we need God's revelation. We can't sit in a corner unaided by God's revelation and come to all truth. But at the same time, what the postmodern age is saying is they're saying you can't know truth. You can't know anything. In fact, you might as well just give up. You might as well give up rational thought and just despair and therefore try to know God in the world through your feelings, through your intuitions, because they claim our sense perceptions are imprecise, because you and I have biases, what they claim is that you and I can never come to the truth of the way the world really is. This is first taught in a book called The Critique of Pure Reason by a man named Immanuel Kant in the 18th century. What Immanuel Kant taught was that there was two worlds. There was what he called the phenomenal world, the world as it appears, and then he said that there was a noumenal world, the world as it is. And because you and I, again, have wayward sense perceptions, our eyes can deceive us, our ears can mislead us, because you and I have biases, Immanuel Kant said we are stuck in the phenomenal world, the world as it appears. One of the ways that we combat that, yes, Eric, one of the ways we combat that is to show that the Bible affirms that our sense perceptions are good enough to know truth. In fact, you remember John says the things that we have 
beheld, the things that we have seen, and the things that we have heard concerning the word of life. The apostles were the eyewitnesses of Christ and his glory, and they used their sense perceptions. The Bible affirms that we can know truth, but again, we're not rationalists sitting in a corner reasoning to all truth. It, yeah. it seems like Spinoza and Kant, they both, in a different way, throw the baby out with a bathwater. Yes. That's a theological concept here. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but I like in, other it. Words, in other words, the balance, what we need to have is balance. Yeah. We are given minds that we can think. We're also given the Word of God yeah. that will reveal mysteries. Yep. And so, I don't know if I'm confusing the two guys, but Spinoza is like, if it didn't make sense to you, then God's wrong. The Bible's yes. wrong, you know, if it That's doesn't make right. sense to you. And then on the other extreme with Kant, so he threw out the concept of God's revelation and, yeah. and God's uh, wisdom over and above man. And so then right. Kant, Kant, what he said is, hey, you know, all of these words, they have different meanings. Uh, there's, no, there's no truth, you know. Well said, Eric. I love the way you said that. Let me, let me put it in this way. You're exactly right. Spinoza is saying you don't need God's word. Right. What Kant was saying is you can't know God's word. Exactly. But in both cases, we're without the word of God. Yeah. Both of them demonic concepts. Exactly. Well said. So yeah. You know, I, I don't... I, yeah, you know, I think in the case of Spinoza, I think that's certainly true. To be honest with you, I don't know Immanuel Kant. Um, of course, or they yeah, exactly. They were certainly heretics, <laughs> right? Whether or not any of them claimed to be theists of any kind, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, there certainly wasn't a faith revealed in the scriptures, but yeah, I'm not sure if they were technical atheists or not, to be honest with you. So it's a good question. I'll have to research that someday. But thank you. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because it ties into this idea of just what Marilyn said. Do we know God in the world through what he's revealed? Or is it just of our own devices? And that's the idea of not leaning on our own understanding. Let's go to the fourth one. Let's differentiate between the understanding of mankind and trusting in the Lord. Anyone want to handle that one? What's the understanding of mankind and how does that differ? And I'm talking about mankind in the sense of unregenerate mankind. Yeah, Rich. Well, just a verse that I'm thinking about, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Yes. We are intrinsically, without understanding, we are intrinsically wicked to the core. And if we go by Sean Hannity, um, the wisdom that we'll glean from our own hearts is going to come out to be wrong every time. Exactly. And then, of course, the other part that deals with the other part, as you guys are mentioning, is, you know, we are the vine. No, he is the vine. We are the branches. If we abide in him, I mean, that's where all truth comes from, is from Amen. the vine. And it's just amazing how these guys can get it so wrong. But it, it does stand up to that verse, the heart is deceitful above all things. Absolutely. That Jeremiah passage is so important. You're absolutely right. So we don't even know how wicked our own heart is, our own thought life. And um, absolutely, the, the, when you look at mankind, they don't naturally seek for the gospel. The gospel is something that's abhorrent to them. And so that's where we look at the wisdom of God, the foolishness of the cross. It's foolishness, yes, but only to those who are perishing, right? But to us who are being saved, it's the very power and the wisdom of God. So well said, good answer. Yeah, Brian. We learned earlier in Proverbs that true wisdom starts with God. 
Yes. And, and then uh, this wisdom is also referenced in uh, Romans uh, 12, 16. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not, do not be wise in your own estimation. There you go. Very good. Very good, yes. Yeah, I was thinking, um, we'll, we'll come to this passage today. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, we'll talk about this, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, just as Brian had cited from Romans. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So we have to be people who are dedicated to say, look, I might be wrong, but the word of God never is. And so um, listen to this. I had a little saying that I wanted to come away with with this, something that we can kind of keep in our mind as a little slogan, but I think it's theologically true. I wrote down this. I said, we can be confident in what God does reveal, but not in the whims of what we feel. So let's say that again. We can be confident in what God does reveal, but not in the whims of what we feel. Okay, so that's the difference between the rationalist. Benedict Spinoza is confident in the whims that he feels. Therefore, he doesn't need God's revelation. We can be confident in God's revelation. We're not postmodern. 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, we can know true things. We're not postmodern, but it has to come from God's revelation. Yes, I just wanted to throw in, when it comes to a manual, you can't know. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. Okay, moving ahead. I like it. Yeah. In Psalm 37, verse 3, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. Amen. Amen. Um, in fact, we'll talk about dwelling in the land today. We'll talk about the length of days and some of those promises. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, Psalm 37. Very good. Okay, let's get started in the text here. We'll start reading Proverbs 3, 1 through 2. Again, I believe Solomon wrote this. He said, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Now, the first thing I want to point out are in these underlines, we have to define whose teaching and whose commandments. My teaching and my commandments. Here, I think there's really three options. It could be God, it could be Solomon, or it could be kind of the parent, the average parent, the prototypical parent who loves God. And I believe that while Solomon is certainly writing this, and this is scripture, and ultimately we know God is the ultimate parent, as it were, the heavenly father, I think this can apply, and the way this does apply is to the parent who's trying to teach his son or his daughter the ways of life. But implied is that this is important. What is implied is that parent knows the word of God and that they're accurately revealing the word of God. And so when it says my, I'll pull up my pointer here. I got a new computer. I'm a little slower on this. Notice the my teaching and the my commandments. The my, I think, is the prototypical godly parent who rightly divides the word. I think that's how Solomon sets us up. And so the idea is that they're trying to relay true wisdom from the word to their son or daughter. And the question is, will that son or daughter listen? Will they acquiesce to the scripture or to their feelings? Will they acquiesce to God's word or their sin nature? Now, I want to talk a little bit about this length of days. And we'll talk more about this in the next slide. But notice the promise in verse 2 is for the length of days. 
and years of life and peace they will add to you. That was a promise that God gave to his people, Israel. Let's remember that the promises that God gave to Israel are unique to Israel. So, for example, God promises that if they would trust in him, he would fight on their behalf against other nations. Now, do we have that same promise today that if you and I as American evangelicals are faithful, God is going to fight on behalf of our country? No. Why? Because we're not Israel. So we have different promises, right? We're the church. We have the promise of the forgiveness of sins. They had, by the way, they could have the same, an everlasting life. But we're not promised that if, in fact, our country becomes, quote-unquote, faithful, that God will somehow fight against our enemies. Okay, so that was one of the promises that was given to Israel, that they would have length of days. And so turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. This is one of the passages in the law in which we see that God gives, gives a promise of length of days. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. Listen to this promise that God gave. And again, this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. Deuteronomy 4.40, he says, So you shall keep his statute and his commandments, which I am giving you today. Now here's the purpose, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Isn't it interesting that the land that was given to Israel is for all time? Now you might say, wait a minute, hey, they lost that. We lo- they, they lost it in the Babylonian destruction and deportation in 586 B.C. Uh, prior to that, the Assyrian destruction in 722. They lost it again when the Romans came and crushed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But the point is, is that one day, for all time, this will be their land, and Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. Okay, so this is uh, a promise that they can take to the bank. Again, though, Notice the promises, they will live long in the land. It'll go well with them if they obey. Okay, now that's a promise that's given to Israel. Now I'm going to come back to this in the next slide. I'm going to talk about the length of days. And I'm going to show you a progression in the Old Testament where length of days can be blended to eternal life. And I'll show you some evidence of that because we want to talk about this idea of length of days and how it blends into this idea of eternal life in progressive revelation through the scriptures. The next thing, though, I want to talk about is notice in blue, they're promised peace. That term peace, of course, is shalom. And shalom, of course, has to do with having peace with God and man. It's this comprehensive peace, not just a peace of mind, but a comprehensive peace in every sense of the word. That's ultimately the peace that God brings upon his people. In other words, The peace that God will bring in the millennial kingdom isn't one where there's turmoil everywhere and you're going through really horrible things, but nonetheless, you still have the peace of God in your heart. No, there'll be peace. Why? Because the swords will be beaten into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and the nations will no longer learn war. That's Isaiah 2. There'll be peace. Why? Because you'll be in your resurrected body. What's going to affect you in your resurrected body? Very little. (laughs) Nothing, right? You don't have to fear anymore. You're with your Lord. Do you know there's going to be a battle even after the millennial kingdom at the very end? Do you know how lopsided that is? I'll tell you how the battle goes. 
All the bad guys come are unbelievers. Jesus calls fire down and devours them and then sentences them to hell. That's a lopsided battle. We have nothing to fear. So we are going to have peace. We really will have peace. No longer will you be struggling to survive anymore as the believer. And again, that promise in a narrow way, a diminished way, was given to the people of Israel if they would believe and obey. Yeah, Brian. Hebrews emphasizes a rest and eventual eternal rest. This yes. Is same type deal. Exactly. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, very good point. The writer of Hebrews cites from Psalm 95, it's very interesting, is David says, so there remains a rest for the people of God. What year roughly did David write that? And I'll come right to you, Eric. We'll just answer this a little bit because I think that's a great point. Do you remember what year David wrote around 1000 BC? And so he says, there remains a rest for the people of God. The point that the writer of Hebrews makes with that is that Joshua, some 350 years earlier, brought the people into the promised land. And the point that the writer of Hebrews makes is if that had exhausted the rest, then why does David speak 350 years later of a rest that you could enter into eternally? And so the point is, that's the everlasting life that you're referring to. Absolutely good reading. Very good. Um, Eric, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to emphasize um, the... Uh, yeah, there's, I've read stuff by supposed Christian leaders and particularly people who are, uh, you know, working in the Middle East, you know, and all of that. And, yeah. uh, and, and I'll never forget, a guy that I know lives in England sent me a little book. And it's by this guy who's apparently a big wheel. He's a big deal with Christian outreach to Muslims. And he said in this book, and I put it down. As soon as I read this, I thought, I can't read this anymore. Yeah. Because it was, there's so many people that are not willing yet to beat their swords into plowshares. I mean, that's just awful. It's like such we're gonna a do terrible it. misconstruing of, of the timing, you know. Right. And there's, there's so much of that. Well said. That's post-millennialism that Bob has been warning us about, the idea that, we're the ones who bring that about. Yes. I, I don't have a mic, but... Oh, yeah, let's get you one. But go ahead and think about... Um, didn't the disciples want to call down fire? Yes, they want to do the same so thing. So would you call that a, a confusion of what... Yeah. The timing... The timing, exactly right. doing when? Absolutely, yeah. Do you remember um, when they were going through the, through the various cities of Israel, the disciples, because there was unbelief at Chorazin and Bethsaida, they wanted to call fire down. And Jesus had to quench that spirit, right? He said, no. So there's a time for the wrath of God, and that's related, relegated to the parousia. The first coming is for the salvation of sinners. The second coming is for the judgment upon the unrepentant. Okay, so there's a timing for it. Um, Eric, you bring up this idea of post-millennialism, the idea that you and I are going to be the ones who beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, and the nations will no longer learn war, that we do it. The problem with that is it's not taught in the Bible. Do you know that Jesus says before he comes, faith is so rare, he says, when the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith upon the earth? He's asking the question, will he find it? Do uh, you remember in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, the days in the parousia, the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years are so bad, he said, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. Does that sound like we're going to be effective? in Christianizing the planet and build, you know, building a kingdom here and now without Christ and beating the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning No. 
No, it's going to be something that Christ alone brings by his power. So, yeah, very good. Let me come now to this next slide. I want to talk about this idea of length of days. Because one of the promises, again, that we just saw in the previous passage is that God promised to those who would obey him, they would have length of days. Part of having wisdom in this life is that you will be given length of days. And again, it's not an absolute promise. Um, We had a saying as pilots, there were old pilots and there were bold pilots, but there were no bold and old pilots, right? Now, of course, the the joke of... There's always a guy that you knew that would fly in the worst thunderstorm, the worst ice that you've ever seen, and maybe for a while he'd get away with it. But the lack of wisdom would end up killing him at some point oftentimes. And that's kind of the idea in wisdom is that the wisdom of the Lord keeps you from killing yourself. It's that kind of idea. But this idea of length of days that's promised to the Israelites if they would believe and obey, what I'm going to show you is in the Old Testament, sometimes you look at it and you say, yeah, length of days is a long life here and now, but it starts to blend into everlasting life in various passages. And so I want to trace that with you. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 35, 18. What I'm going to do is I'm going to trace this idea where we start to see the notion of the afterlife and everlasting life in the scriptures. I want to start in Genesis 35, 18, where you have the departure of, I believe it's Rachel's soul. After she gives birth, it would be a to her son here, Benjamin. So Genesis 35, 18, it's very interesting. Notice it says, it came about as her soul was departing, then parenthetically it says in the Hebrew, for she died, that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So why is that passage important? Well, notice her soul was departing. Okay, so the idea then is not that the soul and the body are intricately woven so that they cannot be separated. But see, the Jews believe that there's a separation of body and soul. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, you can see that that development is beginning in Genesis 35. Okay, now why is that important? Because length of days then isn't maybe necessarily just tied to this life. Now, again, if that's all we had to go by, that's not very much. But you can start to see this idea of everlasting life. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Job 19.25. We'll look at this great promise that Job looked to. Job 19.25. You know, Job had suffered more than most men ever do. And in Job 19.25, he expresses great hope that even after the destruction of his flesh, he would see God. And remember, this is written down right around the time of the patriarchs. I believe this would have been written probably around 1800 B.C. It's one of the oldest books in the entire Bible. Job 19.25, notice the great... And by the way, I'm sorry, um, I think it's 25. I hope I'm right because I've got a typo in there. I, I went through 25 to 27. Is that right? Okay. Because I wrote down in one of the verses, verse 16 for 26, but it must be 26. Okay. Job 19.25. Job said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. The term goel, by the way, is applied to Christ elsewhere. The Redeemer. He says, And at the last, 
He will take his stand on the earth. Notice verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold. Stop there. Why is it important that he uses that adjectival intensive, whom myself shall behold? The reason that's important is because one of the beliefs that people had in the time of the patriarchs was that everlasting life was relocated to your children. You would live on through your children. That was a common belief. I may not live physically, but my children will, and I'm living vicariously through them. That would be the idea. Well, what Job is doing is he's ensuring us as the reader knows that's not what he's talking about. It's he himself. It's not his child. It's not a son. It's not a granddaughter. It's nothing like that. It's he himself. It's like, do you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend with the shout of the archangel with the trumpet of God? That adjectival intensive shows it's the Lord. It's not an angel, not a stunt double, not a surrogate. It's the Lord who's coming. It's he himself. Jesus bodily will come for us. Okay, that's exactly what Job is saying. It's that he himself is going to see his Redeemer. And he says, in whom my eyes will see and not another And then look at the ending, my heart faints within me. It's so wonderful that he feels faint of heart. Yes, Bob. We've talked about authorial intent. Yes. The author determines the meaning of someone might say, well, Job and everyone was confused at that point. But we have a later clue that shows that he did speak the truth. Yes. So someone might say, well, Job didn't know what he's talking about. Because God came and corrected everybody. Right, right. But if you look later in Job 42, the Lord himself speaks. And uh, then Job, well, before that, there's a big, long uh, discourse where the Lord corrects everybody. Yeah. And then in verse 7, Job 42, 7, after the Lord... Yahweh, that is, had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Do you wow. see that? Wow. So very Job good. 42 7 says that Job had spoken the truth. Wow. Even though there were things to learn. And so if Yahweh says in verse 7 and 8, uh, 7 basically, yeah. Job did speak the truth, and that's one thing he spoke the truth about. Wow. Very that, good. So if there was a someone were in a debate, hope. Bob, and someone were to say, well, hey, Job was confused just like his friends, that is a dynamite passage to prove that, no, Job was speaking accurately. I learned that from... Uh, some teachers of the Old Testament I had. Dynamite reading. That were really good. Yeah. In fact, I read their commentaries now. But if God speaks and tells us something, God cannot lie. Amen. We should take that as the correct interpretation. <laughs> well said. So. That's a good hint. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. That's dynamite. Um, hey, let's turn to another one. Let's go from the time of Job. Let's fast forward to the time of David. So around 1000 BC. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 1610. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 1610. Uh, As you're turning to Psalm 1610, I want you to remember that we shouldn't guess whether this is about the resurrection. We know that it is because the Apostle Peter affirmed that it is. 
at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So this is talking about the resurrection specifically of the Messiah, but of course he's the first fruits of the resurrection. The rest of us will follow. Psalm 16.10. Again, Peter said that David was speaking ahead of the Christ. Psalm 16.10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, as David wrote that, certainly that does apply to David in this sense, that he will not be abandoned forever in the grave. He will be raised too. But the point that Peter makes, do you remember in Acts 2, is that when Peter was preaching at Pentecost, whose body was rotting it up in the tomb? David's was. And they knew exactly where it was. Do you know whose body was not in the tomb? Had it been in the tomb, they would have said, hey, Jesus is still in the tomb too, and here he is. How can you say this applies to him? But his tomb is empty. And so do you remember when it says in this text, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the Sheol here is probably roughly the grave, because I think there's probably synonymous parallelism, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The idea is you decay where? In the grave. But why was it necessary for Jesus to be raised on the third day? Because the Jews believed that official decay began on the fourth day. So being raised on the third day, he didn't undergo official decay. One of the evidence of, evidences of that is found in John chapter 11. Do you remember Jesus is going to raise Lazarus? And he's going to call him out of the tomb, but is it Martha or Mary? It's one of the sisters of Lazarus. She says, it's in John 11, you can look this up. She says, Lord, don't remove the stone. There's going to be a terrible stench. And literally, it's a participle, for he's a four-dayer. It's actually a term that's used. Yeah, Bob. I had that open here because I was thinking of it. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already decaying. Decaying, that's 11, um, 39. Yes. It's been four days. Yes. And then Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? They removed the stone. And uh, then we had this resurrection, but not the resurrection. Right, right. Lazarus still had a mortal body. But if you look in chapter 12, were you going to go here anyhow? No, no, go ahead. Under the heading in my Bible says, a decision to kill Lazarus. Okay, so the glory of God was shown in a preview when Lazarus is raised, but to show the depravity of the human heart. Then it says in um, uh, verse 9 of chapter 12, that a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. Therefore, the chief priest decided to kill Lazarus also. They're going to kill him again? He died. <laughs> sinks up the tomb. He's raised as a sign. Now, this is right. an example of the yes. power of God who raises the dead. And the hardness of the hearts wow. of the leadership was so uh, horrible yeah. that they wanted to kill him. That's bad. And it's honestly shocking, (laughs) frankly. And so we don't know how much we need God to work in our lives. Amen. Because we can't say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Right. Well, I couldn't say that. Yeah. We're the same with the same heart. Okay. 
Yeah, amen. Yeah, can you imagine poor Lazarus? So, in the tomb, called out of the tomb, then they're trying to kill him again. <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? It is. Uh, yeah, Rich. Jesus wept going up to the tomb. Yes. Is the reason Jesus wept, people are like, well, he wept because he loved Lazarus so much and he's dead. No, no, of course not. I mean, because he's going to raise him from the dead. Why would he weep because he's dead? Was the reason Jesus wept is because people wouldn't understand what he was about to do and the symbolism that he was about to do? Is that the reason he wept? You know, um, I think it's, it's a lot of reasons. I think a lot of it has to do with simply just the, what sin has done to his people, what sin has done to his creation. Um, he's really, remember, truly God and truly man. He really has seen what sin has done to these people that were his friends. Um, remember in Luke 19, he wept over Jerusalem. You know, if only you'd known the time of your visitation, but now it's hidden from your eyes. He genuinely has compassion and sorrow upon those that sin devastates. And um, so, you know, I, I've seen those discussions as well where he didn't weep over, you know, the fact that he was dead, and, or, but he was, he was weeping just merely because of the unbelief. I think it's all of it. Of uh, Jesus as our Savior, but remember, truly God, truly man, he really is sorrowful over what sin has done to his people. I think that's the best way of just looking at it. Uh, but again, that's just my opinion on that. Yeah. I hope this isn't off topic, but that passage, you know, it, it comes to my mind a lot when I'm talking to people who say, you know, God won't, you know, do anything that you, without asking you first, you know, your free will and stuff, you know, yeah. yep, that right. people have free will. It's like, what about Lazarus? Jesus didn't ask <laughs> right. him if he wanted to be raised from the dead. Great point. He did it without consulting him first. And I guess that that's the part where I feel like, the hope is is there. There's just no excuse that God does what He pleases. Great entirely. Point. So, yes, mm-hmm. Lazarus is a picture of what God does for us. What did Lazarus contribute to His resurrection? Nothing. He was rotting up in the tomb. What do we contribute to our salvation? Nothing. We're spiritually rotting it up. He calls him effectually out of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. When you and I are regenerated by the Spirit, remember in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that's doing that to us. That's why Jesus likens it to being born from above. What did you and I do to contribute to our birth here and now? Nothing. The same is true for being born from above. Excellent point. That's exactly right. Isn't it interesting how all this theology is connected you know, isn't it beautiful? I never thought about it. Is that what you Bob, go ahead. Well, I have this open here. The Jesus wept um, is in verse 35, one of the, you know, the shortest verse. Okay. And That's it right, shows um, his love. It shows his humanity. Yeah. Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God. And... The point of this whole thing is that if you go all the way through John, the Holy Spirit comes yes. and convicts. All of these things are just leading to the fact that we need Christ and the gospel. And some people think, well, if God does things the way the Bible says he does them, that he doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. And others have said, well, he had to say Lazarus come forth because otherwise everybody would have been raised. That's not the point either. Right, right. The point is the hardness of heart 
Why would they know Lazarus had died? This community knew what was going on. The report had gotten out. Now they want to kill Lazarus again. And it, to me, it shows just how sinful sin is yeah. and how badly we need God's grace to change us. Amen. And if you look at some of the uh, illustrations in the Old Testament, if you think about all the miracles that people that came out of Egypt saw, yeah, has anybody ever seen anything like that? No. And so um, right. the Bible, as we understand it, it'll powerfully impact us. It'll change us, and it'll give us grace to get through whatever we're going through right now. Yeah. And I, I haven't seen this much uh, sorrow and difficulty and fear probably since the 70s. This mm-hmm. may be worse for a lot of people. Yeah. And if we, we just need to really pray, believe the word of God, care for one another, and faithful is he who called you who will also do it. Amen. I'm tempted to say sometimes, this is too hard, I can't do this. But I can't say that because God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, but with the temptation will show the way of escape, which is to believe his promises. Amen. And so that Jesus wept, Jesus prayed, Jesus said, can't you, another gospel, I believe, can't you pray with me? Yeah, and they if, couldn't even do that. Right. right. <laughs> and some have said, well, that's what we got to prove. We can prove, we got to prove we can pray all night and not fall asleep. Then God will help us. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point. <laughs> sure. Jesus was helping people who couldn't do it. Right. And God will help us in these times. Amen. So it's very, very difficult, and we need one another. Well said. Thank you. Great discussion. Um, this is so good. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to put up, did I put up this one? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to put this one up. This, this is supposed to be about a half hour ago, but I wanted you to see in Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Remember, this is from Sinai, that your days may be prolonged in the land. I just wanted you to see that verse, may be prolonged in the land. You can see that living out life, a good life in the land of Israel was important to them. But what I'm showing you is there's a progression where the life in the land physically here and now wasn't the only promise. And I want you to turn... Now to Ecclesiastes 12.7. Let's look at Solomon. That's David's son. So I'm going from David, 1,000 B.C.-ish. We're in the 900s B.C. now. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12.7. We're starting to unpack data. Oh, by the way, I'm still out of order. Before we get to Ecclesiastes 12.7, let me put up on the screen Psalm 23.6. Notice, remember, David is going through the valley of the shadow of death. But he fears no evil. His rod and his staff are with him, etc. Psalm 23, 6, he says, Surely goodness and loving kindness, there's chaset, God's grace and mercy. That's what loving kindness is, the term for chaset. It will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. And I do think forever probably is the preferred translation there. So how is David going to dwell in the house of Yahweh forever if he's dead. I remember when they were debating Jesus was with the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. Jesus applied the passage from Exodus 3. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why did he use that with the Sadducees? Why did he use Exodus 3? I would have used Daniel 12. 
which talks very strictly about the resurrection. Why did Jesus use Exodus 3? Because the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of Moses. So what he does is he takes, okay, I'm going to take one of your books, and I'm going to show you that implied is the afterlife. The point is, if God is, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who died physically hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, well, Jesus concludes he's the God of the living, not of the dead. He, it doesn't say that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is. And isn't it false advertising that God is merely the God of three dead guys? Well, of course it would be, right? So he's the God of the living, not of the dead. That's the point. So you see this idea of everlasting life in a lot of passages that you start, you don't see maybe until you start really digging into it and saying, wow, there's a lot of evidence for it. Um, let's look at Ecclesiastes 12.7. I hope you've turned there. Notice uh, here, Solomon said, Then the dust, he's talking about death, will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So again, this is the separation of body and soul. When I was in seminary, there was a heretic who taught systematic theology. He was a monist. He believed that there could be no separation of body and soul. And I waited to see his biblical evidence. He had none. And a few months later, I found out why he had none, because he was an atheist. (laughs) <laughs> he didn't believe in the Bible, and he was teaching systematic theology at Bethel Seminary. His name was Laurent Schultz. Bob, um, that was actually when I met Bob, because I couldn't believe what I was going through. I heard Bob DeWay on the radio. A quick story. I had an old airport car. I was an airline pilot at the time, and it was a Honda, and my antenna was so beat up, the antenna had rusted off and just fallen right off. Well, I would hear Bob DeWay on Saturday mornings. I would fly in. I'd land my airplane, get on the shuttle, get to my car, and I'd hear Bob on Jan Markell's show, and I'd love to listen to him. Well, I would lose reception, and it's in the winter, keep, keep in mind. So in order to get reception, I would have to put my finger on top of the antenna, but then my hand would get so cold I couldn't take it anymore, so I have to sit on my hand for a while. I must have looked ridiculous, this guy driving down 494 coming from the International with his finger on the antenna, but that's how desperate I was to get reception to hear Bob DeWay, and who loved the truth. So... Anyway, but my point is, you can see that Ecclesiastes 12.7 is talking about this separation of body and soul, right? Just as the Christians teach now, of course, in the New Covenant. Now, turn your Bibles ahead to Isaiah. I'm just going to finish this slide up with you. Isaiah 26.18-19. I'm going to show you a clear reference to the resurrection in Isaiah. In fact, as you're turning to Isaiah 26, we'll look at 18 and 19. Remember, this is called the Little Apocalypse. And if you line everything that you see up from Isaiah 24 through Isaiah 27, it lines up with the book of Revelation. It really lines up with it. So notice here in Isaiah 26, 18 through 19, notice it begins by saying, we, this is Israel, we were pregnant, we writhed in labor, we gave birth as it seems only to the wind. That's the lack of human ability. They couldn't bring salvation. It says, we could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. That was the result of mankind. Mankind couldn't do it. But notice verse 19. Here's the promise of God to them. Verse 19 of Isaiah 26, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. Let me stop there. What's this dew of the dawn? What's that all about? Remember in the ancient Near East, and I shouldn't say even the ancient Near East, I just mean the Middle East. I mean, geographically, you have a lot of days that are very dry. So 
as the dew point, the temperature goes below the dew point in the morning, they get dew which waters their crops, waters their flowers. The dew is considered life-giving to them. And so the idea of dew is connected to new life. That's why he's raising it. It's going to be like new life. The dew of the dawn. And he says, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. There's the resurrection. The resurrection is being referred to. By the way, if you keep reading on, it'll say, come, my people, hide in your rooms while my wrath runs its course. People of God are going to be hidden while his wrath runs its course. That's all found in Isaiah 26, some 740 years prior to the birth of Christ. Finally, let's look at another one. I'm just showing you that length of days blends from life here and now to one day eternal life in the Old Testament. Turn to Daniel 12.2. This is one of the clearest expressions of the resurrection anywhere in the Old Testament. Daniel 12, verse 2. Daniel 12, 2. And this is all related to the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel that we had read about in Daniel 9. Daniel 12, 2. Notice it talks about two different groups. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. That's resurrection. Notice it says, these to everlasting life, the believer, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Notice the term everlasting, olam, without end. There's going to be some who are raised to everlasting life, but others to everlasting contempt. There will be a resurrection. So my point in saying this is this length of days that is promised for those who have the wisdom of God. Yes, to the Israelites it first meant having a long life here and now on the earth. And by the way, you can tell that to your son or daughter. If they're young, if you act like the fool, there's a good chance that you die like the fool. But if you will adopt God's wisdom, you'll have length of days here and now. But the ultimate wisdom every person needs is the gospel. Because through the gospel, we have vicariously the great transaction where we get rid of something that we can't have, our sin debt that Jesus took on the cross, that he paid off, and we get something that we desperately needed, his righteousness given to us all by faith. And that, if we have faith in him, we are given everlasting life, a life that will be without end. The length of days that we will have will truly never go away. And so that's the wisdom that every single person ultimately needs is the wisdom that comes from the gospel. And so with that, let's conclude. We'll bow our heads in prayer. We'll pray for the sermon here as well. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for wisdom. We thank you for the absolute promise of everlasting life and the length of days in your kingdom that will be without end, all because of the wisdom of salvation that you deposited to us in the scriptures. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us perseverance in these difficult days, that you give us the gospel upon our lips, give us boldness, give us opportunity and regenerate hearts of our friends, our neighbors, and our loved ones so that may, they may know Christ and they may live as well. I pray, Heavenly Father, for Bob and the sermon that we would have ears to hear and that we'd be not just hearers of the word but doers. They'd help us to understand this text so that we may not try to devoid, or devoid our uh, life from you, Lord, that we would live lives that are pleasing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, next week, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pick up right where we left off, and we'll just continue. And then what I'll do is I'll probably have another assignment for you for uh, next week then for the following two weeks 
when we come back to it. So we'll just pick it up right here where we left off.